I regularly say to young preachers when I have the chance, whatever else you do, don't read stuff to the people. So I want to read to you this uh, (laughs) excerpt from a book. The author of this book is a guy named Richard Foster, and uh, Richard Foster is a Quaker by denominational affiliation, but he has long since surpassed that and has become a, uh, a voice for 21st century Christianity. And uh, while I don't agree with everything that he writes or says, I have a lot of respect for who he is and what he has done for us as a church and in my own personal life. I had a chance to meet him a number of years ago now. I went to a conference and it was a small conference by design, and I found myself walking with him for about five minutes. And I had grown up uh, through the formal ministerial training, reading some of his writings, and so I had in my mind this picture of a Quaker writer. And uh, so I didn't recognize him when I saw him until I was introduced to him. Uh, first of all, he's an old man now, uh, which means he's older than I am. And uh, secondly, he had long gray hair that was pulled into a ponytail that went almost all the way down his back. And I thought to myself, that's my kind of guy right there, swimming upstream all the time. And uh, so I had a chance to just walk with him and talk with him a little bit, and uh, that was kind of a good thing given all the stuff that I had read from him. And uh, I want to share something with you that he wrote. Actually, he said this. He was doing a uh, commencement address for a college in California, and uh, in the course of his address, he comes to his fourth point, and so he says this. I read it, by the way, because it holds profound truth for us, and I hope that you'll listen to the, actually there's a number of things in what I'm about to read, it's relatively short, but there's a number of things in there that just speak directly to our times, and I trust that it will speak directly to you. And so he says this, fourth and finally, I urge you, the class of 2010, to allow your words to be grounded in silence. Remember T.S. Eliot and what was written in the poem Ash Wednesday when he asked this question, where shall the word be found? Where will the word resound? Not here. There's not enough silence. Foster goes on to say, you see, the distraction is one of the deepest problems we face today. All of the visual stimuli, all of the chatter of the blogosphere, all of the confusion of doublespeak keep us perpetually distracted. Remember, silence is a spiritual discipline, and we need this discipline to unplug us from the inane babble of modern culture. Today, as a result of emailing and texting, which are wonderful technological inventions in themselves, but as a result of emailing and texting, we are saying more and more about less and less. For many, this has become a genuine addiction. The din of noisy words tossed out so casually, so superficially, so carelessly snuff out the silence that would open us to the voice of the Spirit that groans within us. So, in our day, we must learn 
to be still, to wait, to hold our tongue, to observe, to ponder, to wonder. Silence cultivates the soil of our hearts so that life-giving words are allowed to germinate and take root. Then when the time comes for speaking, our words will flow like water from a silent spring. Those are profound words spoken into a culture that is endless in its noise. Take your Bibles and go with me to Luke chapter 4. Actually, if you want to get there quicker, go to Luke chapter 5 and back up a few verses because we're going to finish out chapter 4 today. And as we do that, this message in the text especially is pretty brief. The message itself has, I think, um, the opportunity to be relatively brief. If you sleep hard enough, then I'll be finished very quickly. Uh, but in this, we find profound truth in our day. And it's a truth that I think that we must hold on to. And if, by the way, you need to leave early and you don't want to stick around for the whole thing, let me just give you the whole sermon right now, all right? If you're leaving to go watch the Cowboys, save your time, all right? It's not worth leaving for. But here's the message in a nutshell. Sometimes we need to retreat. As we pick up this story in Luke's gospel, we find that Jesus is now thrust onto the public stage. In the first century part of Galilee, and particularly in the city of Capernaum as we left him last time, Luke has shown us that Jesus is the one who comes with authority that nobody else has. We've seen that in the way that he teaches and the response that people had to him. We've seen that in the way that he handles the demons that are possessing people there. And we've also seen it, as we saw last week, in the way Jesus deals with those who are sick. Jesus is the one who comes with authority that is unmatched in their experience. And I would say unmatched in history because he is, in fact, the Son of God. And he comes onto the scene, and because of those parts of who he is, Luke already now is beginning to show us that Jesus is beginning to build a core group of, well, I want to say followers, but probably the better way to say it is they're just fans. They love what they see. They're anxious about what he might do for them, and so they would love to keep him around. With that increased exposure comes an increased demand, and with that comes some action that we must get a grip on, because Jesus now serves as the example for us in a world full of demands, and a world full of push, we need to see and learn from his actions. And so in verse 42 of chapter 4, we read this. And when it was day, he departed and he went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose." And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This was a regular practice for Jesus. Maybe you say, what what, what regular practice? It's almost hidden away. The whole message today is, is really locked into just a few words in verse 42. And if we're not careful, we'll read over the top of it and we won't really let it ring into our uh, daily existence the way it needs to. And that is the words where it says, and Jesus, when it was day, departed, went into a desolate place. This was a regular habit of Jesus. 
At least eight different times in the Gospels, we find Jesus as he pulls away from the press of the crowd and from the demands of people, and he goes into the wilderness or into a quiet spot or some place where he can pull away from everybody and reconnect eight different times. He does it, we find in Matthew 4 where we saw, and even in Luke where we saw Jesus going out into the wilderness and tempted by the devil. We'll find Jesus as he does this again before he chooses his disciples. We find it multiple times. We find him in the Garden of Gethsemane going off to himself uh, even before the crucifixion event occurs. And he, got, he finds those times at key moments in his ministry where he pulls aside from everything. With that, it becomes a practice that we should emulate. One of the last things my dad said to me, as he was about to walk out of the life of ministry that he had known as a pastor, and he was senior pastor of a church, deep south Texas, where I was on staff with him, and uh, in the transition period, the church asked me to be senior pastor as he retired and moved away, and so there was this almost seamless transition in pastors, which is very rare in a church, and so the day that he uh, would walk out was also the day that I would begin my job as senior pastor there. And, and so I remember, like it was yesterday, standing in his slash my office, a very weird thing. And as we were standing there and he was about to walk out for the last time, one of the last things that he said to me was, Mark, as you move into this job, here's a piece of advice for you. You need to learn to come apart or you will absolutely come apart. My dad understood something of the truth of what Jesus models for us. It's not just true for preachers. It's true for us too. It's true for you as well. In the Christian life that you live, you need to build times in where you come apart from everything and reconnect with God. That's true on the coping level of life. I mean, there's enough stuff that's going to get thrown at you on a day-to-day kind of thing that it will it'll eat your lunch if you don't learn how to cope. And one of the ways you learn how to cope is you come apart from everything and you get alone with God. It's true for coping, but it's even more true just for connecting with God. One of the things that seems to happen for us is we fall into what one writer called Life sleep. I put this on a slide for you so you can see the quote and not just have to listen to it. But this is from Ben Campbell Johnson's book, Living Before God. And he says this. Life sleep is that dormant state in which a person seems to be awake. That is, they open their eyes, they get out of bed, they eat breakfast, they drive to work, they go through the motions of the day, but they are not fully awake. In fact... They take on the tasks of the day unaware of a larger and more important dimension of life. And when we live that way, we miss the spiritual depth of life. You recognize the truth of that? You recognize the truth of the ability that a Christian has to go through the motions of life day in and day out, and yet never really connect with God. I think this is one of those times. I'll pull the covers back a little bit from time to time so that you can see not just what I say, but what I'm thinking behind what I say. 
So I want to do that a little bit here because the reality that we're talking about today needs to be such a fundamental part of the way we live our Christian lives. And yet I believe that it's one of those things that gets pushed to the side because we just don't have time to take time to spend with God. So what happens is we get wrapped up in this race that we're living and that we're running and so we don't really have the time to go spend with God, to, to carve out time from our busy schedule. So what happens then is we begin to grab little pieces of this thing called Christianity and we hold on to them and we draw them close and we wrap our arms around them and we stroke them like it's a dog or something because it makes us feel good. God is good. All the time God is good. Well, yeah... But is he alive in your life? We love to take our nice little folk religious sayings and carry them with us through the day. I'm not saying they're not true. I'm just saying that they're not alive for us. They're just nice little religious sayings. Jesus is modeling something for us that we really need to get. But the problem for us is we let the world get so busy and so important that it pushes us to surface level kind of living for Christ. All the while, we have a God who loves us beyond measure, who waits in the wings for just a little bit of our time. Or worse, not just the surface level Christianity The worst part of the way we tend to schedule ourselves could end up in us becoming just like everybody else. There's no real discernible difference in us and the world if we're not careful because we just don't take the time for God. Dallas Willard, a prolific writer of our time, died just a couple of months ago. He was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California, a most unlikely place for a Christian to be. And yet, he served on staff there and wrote many, many books. He was part of of a a group called a Renovare, which basically means a renewal of Christian faith and spiritual formation. Richard Foster is part of that group also. And and Dallas Willard has written a lot of things that have meant a lot to me through the years. And uh, in one of his books, I, I was reading through some of the stuff, and he was talking as a scientist who also is a Christian, and he was talking about our need for solitude and this pulling aside that uh, we find Jesus doing here. And he's talking about the possibility, the probability, in fact, the very likelihood that we just get so wrapped up in the busyness of the life that we live that we just become like everybody else. So we talked about the scientific experiment that occurred. Now, they used rats, excuse me, mice in this case, because they didn't really want to kill humans, Well, maybe they wanted to, in particular ones probably, but they use rats and mice because it's a little more humane, apparently. And in this experiment, one of the things, they were using amphetamines, speed. And one of the things that they found out in the process of that, and I think it speaks directly to who we are, even though you're not a mouse, it says that a mouse who is given zero amphetamines, no amphetamines at all, will die within 10 minutes of being inserted into a group of mice that have been given amphetamines. Let me put that in modern language for you and me. 
you can be the one who chooses to live your life and to pull apart from everything from time to time, but when you get thrust back into this thing we call the world, its impact on you is going to take you along with the ride. That drives this other truth that they found home even harder. It takes 20 times more amphetamine to kill an individual mouse than it takes to kill them as a group. In other words, if they take one mouse out to the side and they give it X amount of amphetamines and they give everybody else in the group that amount, um, in the group, they don't last as long. Just an individual takes 20 times more to kill them off. You know what that means for you and for me? It means we better figure out how to come apart. Because the reality of our world is that it's going faster than it's ever gone before. There's more packed into a 24-hour period than there's ever been packed before. And we have this incessant noise that assaults us. And if we don't figure out how to retreat, we're going to live lives of disconnected Christianity. Jesus helps us with this. He helps us by modeling the fact that we need an enhanced awareness of the divine presence in our lives. Foster said this, To hear God in the day requires us to break out of old habits and well-rehearsed rituals that are automatic. We don't have to try not to hear God. All we have to do is just go through the day. Let me stop and let's make sure that we're bringing this home to where we live today. How many of you don't raise your hand or anything like that. But how many of you come into church this morning and the last thing on your mind was spending time with God? You see, most of the time, that's not what we do at church. We come into church and we fill it with noise. And so we walk from one class to another class or from a preaching service into a Sunday school class and from a Sunday school class into a preaching service and we fill the space with noise and then we start putting music to it and then we start getting some preacher up there yelling at us and before we know it, we've gone four hours at church and we haven't had time for God because we've structured our religious stuff. Jesus recognized how serious it is, this thing called life sleep. The tendency we all have is just to go through the motions and to get so caught up in the stuff of life that in and of itself might very well be important. But is it crucial? Does it feed the soul? When you find yourself guilty of life's sleep, you need to find a thin place. I mentioned this in a sermon not too long ago. I want to reiterate it for you, and I don't want to totally buy into it, okay? I don't, but not at least the, uh, the historical roots of it. Uh, this term comes from Celtic Christianity back in the mid-first century. And these group of people were coming out of the, their previous look at life, and now some of them had been converted to Christianity as that wave of missionaries swept across uh, that part of Europe, And they brought enough of their background with them that they believed that there were places, key places, where they could go and heaven was just a little bit closer to earth than it was down in the mundane part of living. 
And maybe it's out in the country somewhere for you. Maybe it's on a deer stand or something like that uh, on the lake maybe or in your backyard. I'll talk about that in a second. But, but they believed that there were some places that were just a little bit closer to heaven than what regular earth was. Now, I don't believe that, okay? The reality of Scripture is that God is everywhere. You don't need one place to be closer. But I also know that there are realities that there are certain places that I go that I have had rich experiences with God. It's not because the atmosphere is thinner there. It's just because I was in a better place to hear from God in those places. There is a chair in an office in a church somewhere in the state of Texas that is a thin place for me. Because it's that place where I have gone multiple times and connected with who God is. Do you have a place like that in your life? Maybe it's a closet. Maybe it's in the backyard. You have a thin place in your life that you can go to when the world starts to take its toll on you. And it's like stepping into the throne room of heaven. Not that the place is special. It's the significance that you've placed there about meeting with God in that spot. Isaiah had one of those places. I don't think Isaiah planned it to be one of those places. It just turned out to be one of those thin places where he met up with God. It's in 1 Kings 19. I'm not going to take the time to look at that. And you go back and read it. Most of us know the story. But uh, Isaiah, excuse me, Elijah. Did I say Isaiah a minute ago? It's Elijah, whatever I said. Um, listen to what I mean, not what I say, okay? Uh, Elijah declared war on the evil king and queen. And he did that because he was God's prophet and he was following what God told him to do. But when you declare war on the evil king and queen, you can be sure the evil king and queen are going to come after you with full force. And they did that. So Elijah's on the run and he's trying to make sense of his life and he gets down in the dumps and underneath the circumstances of life and God moves him finally to a place up on top of a mountain in a cave. And he's up there and he's whining about how awful life is. I'm just the only one left and God, what are you going to do? And Why am I doing this? It's not fair. You ever pray that prayer? So he's in a cave. And God decides to make it a thin place. And so scripture says that he sent a wind. Now, we have wind around here. Uh, I grew up in West Texas, okay? What is, we call hurricane force winds out there, they call typical March weather out in Odessa, okay? 60, 70 mile an hour winds are nothing out there. Happens all the time. There's just nothing to blow over out there, okay? No trees or anything like that. So I can only imagine what the wind must have been like for Elijah in this cave. And God sends this wind and it freaks him out enough that he starts looking for God in it. But there's no God to be found in the wind, it says. If you're going to be somewhere in an earthquake, experience probably would say a cave is not the place to be during an earthquake. And yet that's what happened next. And scripture says that God was not in the earthquake. And then fire came, and God was not in the fire. And you know the story. You know how it goes. After all of that, and Elijah gets nothing from God and all of that, all of a sudden there's nothing there except God and Elijah. And he connects. 
That's the picture of coming apart and retreating from the hassle of life and finding that quiet, simple voice of God. Do you have a place like that? Maybe it's not a spot, but do you have that kind of an experience with God? Have you built into your schedule those kind of encounters with God? If you haven't, then the whole point of this message is to encourage you to do that. Now, if you do that, let me give you a few things that you can expect. Four things to be exact, and I'll be done, okay? Uh, Here's the first one. Now, by the way, these are not going to be easy to do. As a matter of fact, you may not get all of them at one time. You may get one one time and nothing else. but, But these are four things out of my own experience that seem to come with blocking out time and space for God in your life. Here's the first one. Uh, You can count on distraction. Now, this is a little complicated. So let me me just use this as an opportunity to give you some personal examples that maybe will help to communicate what I'm saying. Uh, In our backyard is a uh, chair. It's one of those uh, yard swings kind of thing. And uh, Teresa wanted it not long after we got here because she likes to be out uh, outside, and so I got her this thing for her birthday or Christmas or something like that. I don't know, but um, whatever the case, we both use it. And so she also leaves to go to work every day before six o'clock in the morning. And so that means that me and the dog are in charge at the house, and usually that means the dog's in charge at the house. Uh, on this particular day, Tuesday of this week, Teresa left for work, and I decided I needed a little bit of time with God. One of the ways I knew that I needed with time, and, and if you happen to be one of those doubters, you sit out there going, I don't know about all this, you know go into a desolate place that Jesus did. I don't know how much I need that. Here's one of the ways I know I need it. I carry a lot of tension. When I get tense and uptight and stuff, I carry it in my jaws right here, okay? And so I woke up Tuesday morning, and I was like clenching my jaws. It was, you know how you feel when you want to smack somebody? Now, some of you don't know how that feels. You're too good-natured and all, but uh, you grit your teeth, and it's like, you know, well, that's how I felt when I woke up Tuesday morning. I thought, this is not right. So I decided I better spend a little time with the Lord. And so I went out into the backyard, in the back part of the backyard, where Teresa has her swing back there. And I went out there and I sat down, looking for this kind of time with God that Jesus is showing us here. Remember, the word here is distraction. And so as I'm going out there, one of the things I want you to get from this, sometimes the distraction that we get in these, we bring to it ourselves. So I'm walking out. It's 6.05. She's gone. And I'm walking out, and it's, you know, a good... 10-second walk out to the chair, and on the way out there, I'm about to sit down, I realize that I left my phone in the house. And I thought to myself, I can't live without my phone. Now, how ridiculous is that? I thought to myself, somebody might need me. At 6 in the morning, I don't think so. Let me give you a better truth than that. If I hadn't spent time with God by 6 in the morning, you don't ever need me. Hello. By the way, that's not just true of preachers. That's true of you. If you don't spend time with God, you don't have anything to offer for people in need. But in my mind, I kept thinking, I need to get my phone. But I had enough, eventually, got to the point, I had enough Spiritual sensitivity to go, no, this is really not about me having my phone there. That's a distraction. I need to focus in with the Lord here. So I started processing through that. And I had other things that that I brought with me that were distractions. For instance, I left the television on in the house. 
Okay, now it's not very far to the back of our yard, uh, and we have blinds over the the TV. But I mean, not the TV; that would be difficult to watch uh, over the window. Uh, but I could see because it was still dark outside. I could see around the edges of the blinds, the window. I could see the light flash when the TV was on. You know what I started thinking? What's on TV? What am I missing on TV? Nothing's on TV except Fox News at 6 o'clock in the morning. You're not missing anything. Okay? If you miss it, they'll do the same thing 50 times in an hour. But in my mind, I was distracted because I was thinking about what was on television. And then I started thinking, well, I shouldn't be distracted by that. And then I was just distracted by the light. So I had to turn sideways so I wouldn't see that. And I'm back to, okay, Lord, help me now just to spend time with you. And so my own personal distractions, eventually I was able to push off to the side. And then you know what, started, what happened after that? I hate me about this kind of stuff. I started getting distracted by other people's distractions. I'm sitting back there. You know, Highway 69 is open for business at 6.15 on any given workday morning. Lots of traffic up and down. And my house is not too far off of 69. And so I'm sitting out in the chair. It's still dark outside. And I hear trucks going by. And I'm thinking to myself, how many different people in our church I know that live north of here that might be the ones driving by. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, I wonder how they're doing today. And I'm there to spend time with God and all these distractions are assaulting me. So about the time I tuned out the traffic noise, I see this flashing light coming down the road in front of my house. And I'm thinking, surely my house is not on fire. Well, then it's just a school bus with a strobe light on the back of it. Well, people with ADD like me, it's like, squirrel, what? What? (laughs) Now, here's what happens. 20 minutes into my time with God, and I'm still trying to deal with the distractions of it. Hear me say this. This is some of the hardest spiritual work you will ever do. Just spending time alone with God. You would expect that. Because the last thing Satan wants for you to do is spend time alone with God. So you can count on distractions. You know, the reality is, we're so distracted, it's a wonder we ever hear from God. Even Christian people. Sometimes I think God has to work a miracle so that we would hear what he has to say. Let me help you with this. I'll give you a little homework. Why don't you take one part of one day and leave your cell phone where you can't get to it? Oh my, you gotta be kidding me. Some people are thinking we gotta fire the preacher. He's ex- Somebody might need me. Listen, you are not that important. I hate to tell you that. Well, my whole job depends on my God will give you another job. If you're too busy to spend time with him, something's wrong in your life. And the distractions that we allow will overcome us if we're not careful. Here's the second one. If you get past the distractions, one of the things you're going to get to is conviction. This one is the part, you know, I don't know, some people have to go, oh, sure, no, the preacher's going to beat us up for being sinful. No, I'm not going to beat you up for being sinful. I'm going to beat you up for being wicked. Wicked's a lot better word than just sinful. 
You know, it's not because I don't like you. It's not even because I want you to be miserable. That's not the case. I'm just looking, holding up a mirror here and looking at it going, that is the most wicked guy that I have ever met. Talking about myself. But here's what happens. When you carve out time for God, and you start spending time with him as Jesus shows us in this passage, you're going to be confronted with just how wicked you are. Because any time you get in the presence of the holy, the sin just rises to the surface. You can't get past it. You see how incredible God is. You have to deal with how unincredible you are. Now, here's the warning for you. Satan will take that and beat you up with it for the rest of your life if you let him. So let me give you a verse of scripture when that happens. And Satan starts working you over because you see just how wicked you are. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Throw that at the devil next time he starts giving you a guilt trip. Jesus says, I love you enough to forgive you for that sin. And if he forgives you, who are you not to forgive yourself? So conviction comes, and it's part of the process, but that's part of the beauty of the process because once you get past that, then you get to the third one, which is contentment. This is where you just kind of hang out with God. It's not about the prayers. It's not about, you know, i got to say the right things. It's not I'm reading such and such a book. This is just you and God hanging out. Best example of this I ever got. I've had some pretty good ones. I'll give you two of them very quickly. One of them was a teenage girl when I was a youth minister in New Mexico. She, she didn't have a dad. Well, she had a dad. You know, everybody, you know, if you're alive, you've got a dad somewhere. But in this case, her dad was one of those sorry, no good guys. Uh, he checked out early in the process. Uh, and it was her and her two younger brothers and her mother trying to make a go of it in life. One Wednesday, I had had some issues with this girl. Uh, so I was always kind of leery about her. But one Wednesday night, she won my heart over as a youth minister because she, she wanted to pray. And I was thinking, man, you know, don't do the dramatic prayer stuff. She, here's what she said. This was her prayer. God, I'm just so thankful that you let me crawl up into your lap and you love me. And I thought, that girl gets it. She understands what it means to just be content with God, to just hang out with him. So in that swing in my backyard on Tuesday morning, see, I have this dog. Actually, it's my son's dog. I don't know how I, I still have him after all of these years, but I, got a, I guess he's mine now. Uh, but the electric dog, you remember me talking about him a while back? Okay, so this dog, Nanook is his name. Uh, he's a distraction when I'm trying to have time with God in the backyard. Okay, because he's electric. You know, he's wired, ready to go, even at 6.15 in the morning. So I'm sitting in this chair, and he keeps jumping up in my lap. And I'm smacking him, and I'm throwing an elbow, you know, all those kind of things that I know to get him off. Get off of me. I'm trying to be holy. <laughs> And at one point, he crawled over and he just wouldn't leave me alone. He just kept coming into my lap. And so I reached over and I started scratching him behind the ears. Yeah, I had never met a dog yet who didn't love that. Okay? So I'm scratching him behind the ears and he's looking at me like, Oh, I love you, Dad. Oh, you're awesome. And so I'm scratching him and rubbing his head and scratching up and down his back. And he's looking at me. His eyes are rolling back in his head. And it's like heaven for a dog, right? 
and it dawned on me, I wonder how God feels when we just crawl up into his lap. And he gets to love on us the way he always wants to love on us, but we just don't really have time because we got this important stuff. I don't have time, God. Uh, just, but please send me some money or please send me this or please do that. And so my dog now becomes the messenger of a holy truth for me. Because eventually he gets out of my lap and he just goes lays on the chair next to me. And he's looking around. Every once in a while he looks up at me like, it's cool, Dad. It's all good. And I'm thinking, what a great picture of us and the way we ought to be with God. The world can go do its thing. But there are those times that we pull aside and we retreat from it all. And we just hang out with God. Leads me to the last one. And that is, eventually we get to the point of some insights and some growth stuff. This happened to me yesterday. Uh, I was going to, I said in the early service I was working in the yard. That's really not true. I was walking out to the mailbox to get the mail. And as I was coming back, I was looking at the aftermath of the storm. You know, pine needles all over the roof and broken limbs and stuff in my yard. And I thought, Teresa really needs to get out there and clean this stuff up. And, uh, <laughs> and it's like, poof, the holy truth. You know, the storm that came through and got, we got all the rain and all that kind of stuff and the wind blew and all that that was responsible for all the stuff in my yard. Uh, that's another way that God just kind of cleans up every once in a while. And it's the transition of the seasons and uh, the trees needed those things to be gone because new growth is coming in the spring and there's spiritual truth to that. The stuff of our lives that's left over after the storm is one of the ways that God says there's new growth coming. And you go through the storm, and the storm's real, and stuff gets broken, and you get broken. But God's always on the move, and he's always bringing new growth for us. And Sometimes in those times with him when you pull off from everything, you hear him give you those kind of truths that will last you a lifetime of storms. Last thing. Foster says this, solitude, you see, gives us the space to look carefully and prayerfully at all of the hair trigger responses we have for doing and saying exactly the opposite of how Jesus taught us to live. In other words, when all you do is pack your day full of stuff and there's no room for God in that, you're going to live that way. But when you pull away, and you retreat and you listen to the voice of God. It helps you be who God wants you to be. Notice in this passage that they come after Jesus. They said, hey, man, you can't leave. We want you here. And Jesus says, I can't. I got to go. You know why he knew he had to go? Because he spent time with his father and he was reminded of what life was all about. If Jesus needs that, how much more do you and me? Let's pray. So a simple question for you today. How is it with you and God? Has it been a while since you pulled off of life and listened to him? Maybe. Some of us are here today and we've never had that first encounter with God. 
And I'm talking about stuff today, and in your head you're going, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know about that, but in your heart something just keeps hacking on you. What is going on with this? And it may very well be that God is saying to you, I want you to have a relationship with me. Jesus Christ is the way you do that. I invite you right now, make that choice. If you don't even know what that means, we'll talk about it. Come down, we'll talk about it, we'll pray about it. Introduce you to real living. The only life that is worth having comes through Jesus Christ. Many of us have that life. and We have the relationship secured with God, but our fellowship has long since been pushed to the side. My invitation to you today is to make a choice today that you make a series of choices as you go forward to carve out time for God in your life. It's invitation time. Let's stand and sing.